The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning. Good morning to those of you on live stream joining us that way as well. We miss you here in our midst. Let's go to Isaiah. We are working through various passages in Isaiah 40 through 66. We're going to be in Isaiah 46 today, so turn there with me. I'm going to read our text, and we will pray, and we will take a few minutes to learn from and apply these 13 verses that God has for us, his spirit has for us this morning. Isaiah 46. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness, I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Let's pray to this God. Holy God, take these few minutes and use them in ways that will have ramifications, not just for this time and not just for this day and week, but will have ramifications that you continue to drive into our hearts and minds and hands. God, use the feeble words of man as you have done throughout history. May it be what you have for us to hear. May we humble ourselves 
And rather than carrying our loads, when we find rest and peace in you, the one who has carried all of our burdens to the cross. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let me arrange myself here. iPod is a great, or iPad is a great idea, Chris. All right, so 13 verses today for us to work through. I hope to apply this in several different ways along the way, um, because usually I save application for the end and then I run out of time and don't apply. So I'm going to try and apply along the way today. Uh, But as we do so, I want us to see in a very basic but profound way, even as we dig into the nuts and bolts of it a bit, I want us to see in a very simple way that God is the one who has promised to bear our burdens. He has proven himself to be the one to bear our burdens, burdens which are so much more than we even find ourselves thinking that we have, and to not trust in the gods that we make for ourselves. As we just sang, we want to rest wholeheartedly in God and trust in him, no no other. And so let's look at these words together. Chris, as John said last week, Chris did a great job giving us background a couple weeks ago and helping us to see what Isaiah was speaking of in his time. And so rather than going through all that again, let me just concisely remind us that Isaiah more than any other Old Testament book, other than maybe the Psalms, is what New Testament authors, Jesus himself, quote, to tell the story of God. Isaiah speaks to several things, and there are many themes in it, but Isaiah is speaking to God's people, God's covenant people, pronouncing judgment and hope on them in various ways. They have not obeyed. They have turned their face from God. We can see that as we read through the Pentateuch, as we read Joshua and Judges. We've walked that path as a church in the last couple of years to see that. And so we find ourselves in a time when through Isaiah's ministry, through four kings in the path of Isaiah, or the path of Israel, Isaiah is speaking warning, judgment, hope, and redemption to God's people. In the first 39 chapters, he speaks of present day and deals with present day circumstances of Israel. And during these 39 chapters, he leads Israel to realization that because righteous judgment is upon them, they will be exiled. The blessings and curses of the covenant are going to play out. And so we turn the page from hearing these things and seeing that God will do what he said he will do and it being proven by real-time occurrences and events in the life of Israel in those days. In, verse four, or in chapter 40, we jump ahead where Isaiah looks ahead about 150 or more years into the time when he was writing to speak about the period when Israel would be in exile. Israel would be taken captive by the Babylonians and find themselves experiencing the curses of the covenant. And so these chapters are filled with prophecy of what will play out, the reality of why Israel is in the position that they're in, and yet again, intermingled with the judgment and the realities of what they're experiencing 
the promise of hope and redemption that is a springboard then into continuing chapters coming out of exile that speak to all of the desires and all of the needs of Israel being fulfilled by God, the one who doesn't change. The servant that we see in these chapters is going to be a servant. It's not going to be Israel, though they're called to be a servant in different ways. It's ultimately not going to be them. It's going to be one who comes and suffers and conquers and conquers through his suffering. And through these things, he's going to make all things new. Without trying to sound like Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite, he will do things beyond your imagination. He will give you all the things your heart desires. The longings of Israel will be met in this one, and God will fulfill his purposes. So right in the midst of these chapters, looking ahead now, this is not what Israel is experiencing in real time as they get this message from Isaiah, but they're looking ahead and they're hearing what it will be like for them and what they will experience and who their God will be in this time of exile. Now, I've had the privilege, even before Nathan suggested that we go through this series, I was reading through Isaiah with some of my old college buddies. And so I've been in Isaiah here and there for a couple months now. And I have been amazed at the genius of Isaiah. I'm, I'm scratching the surface as I study Isaiah, and yet his abilities with the language, um, his word pictures, his word plays, the way he takes language and uses it to drive home a point is amazing. We might read Isaiah and we might read these Old Testament books and be like, I don't know what you're saying. You're too flowery and glittery, this poetry stuff. I don't, I don't get it. It is powerful and it is wonderful to work through. Uh, I don't really have anything good to liken it to other than maybe uh, <laughs> Hamilton, the musical Hamilton. Um, it might come as a surprise to some of you, but I did not grow up in the hip-hop scene. Uh, but as I come to understand a little bit and enjoy a little bit of that genre, and Hamilton is just a great cultural illustration of this, it's amazing what that genre and what that form can do with language, right? Some of you are like, oh boy, no, I don't touch that stuff, I don't get it. Others of you are like, yes, he just said Hamilton, this is great. The work that is done in that particular um, piece of music is one that is uh, fascinating and genius in so many ways. Not just the melodies, but the language itself drives the story further and further along. You'll hear melodies and you'll hear phrases pop up the same way, slightly different ways that kind of connect, and you'll track with the story. You'll track with what the author is trying to drive home for us, what he's trying to apply, the agenda that he has. And he'll do it in beauty, beautiful melodies. He'll do it with very pointed, very pointed wordplay sometimes. We're like, oh, wow, that was... That was brilliant, and I get what you're trying to do. That's a little bit what, like what is happening in the book of Isaiah. If you can make that jump, if you can understand what's happening in Isaiah's day, it's a little bit like Isaiah is the Lin-Manuel Miranda of his day. Right? Um, he is speaking in a very pointed way. His message is coming across, and the language uh, doesn't cut any corners in many times. We're going to jump into chapter 46, where we 
see a highlight of a theme of idolatry and false gods and placing trust in false gods. But to give you a picture of just one of the tiny little things Isaiah does with even the theme of idolatry, the first time it comes up is midway through chapter two, and then he bounces through it over and over again, driving home the worthlessness of idols, the nation's worship, and what is going to happen to the nations, but also a call to Israel of judgment, but to understand that they are doing the same thing. And their trust in idols is ridiculous. You guys have probably heard the word Elohim, right? It's even in our chapter here. We'll see in a few minutes. Elohim is a name for God that encompasses the wholeness of God's divinity and attributes. Elohim. In chapter 2, when Isaiah introduces the idols of the nations and the idols of Israel, he calls them the Elohim. Right? When you hear that, you're going to think of Elohim, and yet Lelim means nothing, emptiness. And so right out of the gate, Isaiah mocks our drive towards idols, our drive to find satisfaction in other things by saying, you are worshiping no gods. You are worshiping anti-gods, nothing gods. They are pointless. And on and on he goes, taking words that would have been part of the culture, words that would have sounded similar to other words, and drives his point home. It's fascinating, it's brilliant, it's challenging, and it cuts to the heart where we need to be. So let's take a look at Isaiah 46 itself. As Israel finds itself in captivity in Babylon... They go through about a generation in Babylon. And along the way, as Isaiah looks into and imagines the future of what that exile is going to be like, he prophesies that God is going to ultimately end their exile and deliver them through sending Cyrus, the king of Persia, to conquer Babylon and free Israel from Babylon. And so as he does his poetry as he lays things out from chapters 40 to 46. As he hits to the things that Israel needs to know, he's also painting a picture of the process and the progress of their exile. And he begins in the midst of that to announce that God's deliverance will come through a pagan king. It will come through Cyrus. And so as he tells his story, he weaves in the progress of this Persian army coming to the point of coming to Babylon, to infiltrate Babylon, to conquer Babylon, and defeat it. In the beginning of chapter 46, we find ourselves in that narrative right at the moment that Persia is upon Babylon. Persia is about ready to capture it and to do away with this city that was lauded as the most powerful city and nation in the world at that time. And so we jump right into that part of the story, that the end of the exile is going to come, but this is how it's going to come, and this is what it looks like for Babylon. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together, they cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. 
so Bell and Nebo, what is this? Who are these things, who are these people? Bel and Nebo were Babylonian gods at the apex of Babylonians' culture, their pantheon, their groupings of gods that shaped the Babylonian culture that they believed would help them and assist them and guide them in various ways. Imagine uh, Bel as basically the Zeus of Babylon, the ultimate deity. Neb, Nebo was the son, in their understanding of things, was the son of Bel. And he was the patron god of a nearby city, while Bel was the patron god of Babylon itself. And uh, Nebo was like the, the divine secretary of the gods of Babylon. Babylon loved its power. Babylon thought very highly of itself and their gods. And at the new year, every year, they would parade Bel and Nebo through the streets of Babylon to celebrate their good fortunes, to celebrate that they were in power over the known world at that time. And at the end of the celebration, it was believed that they would set Bel and Nebo in front of the city and in front of the citizens and the gods would declare the fate of the city and the fate of the nation for the coming year. And the Nebo as uh, divine secretary, you uh, Zelda types are gonna love this. He would write the fate of the culture into the tablets of destiny, the tablets of destiny. All right, uh, yeah, that's, that's what happened. That's what they believed and they loved this. This was a huge part of their culture. And so it is very well known that these celebrations would take place throughout Israel's exile. They would watch this take place every New Year's Day. And yet here, Isaiah says that something far different is going to be taking place at the time when Cyrus comes to take over the city. Now Isaiah is imagining this. We're not even sure if this actually happened when Cyrus took over. But it actually happened when the Assyrians were putting pressure on Babylon in Isaiah's day. So when Sennacherib took over or attacked Babylon at least, um, this is what happened in the city of Babylon. And so Isaiah takes something that he knows that happened in his life and ministry and imagines it and projects it on the outcome of the exile to use it as a parable of sorts of idolatry. There's irony for us right out of the gate, right? Because I just had to introduce Bell and Nebo to you. You don't know who they are. They are simply relics of ancient history. They do not run a culture in any way today. They do not shape events or circumstances. But here they are. And yet Isaiah says this. These Idols that you carried, that you used as your celebrations, these idols, right now they are found on beasts and livestock. As Babylon is preparing to be taken over by Persia, they're taking their gods and putting them on carts pulled by livestock to get them out of danger. These very gods that they carried and lauded are now stooped down. They have bowed down. They are laying on their faces, tied to carts, 
and the livestock are carrying them away because there is another power coming in to take over the city. What did Bel and Nebo do? What can they do? They can do nothing. And Isaiah, in utter sarcasm, says, do you see? Do you see what's happening? Those of you that once lauded everything about yourselves and your culture, now find these very gods that you looked to and trusted in as simply empty images, tied down, worthless, powerless. Rather than helping you at all, they're being a burden to your animals. They're a burden to your very livestock. And you looked to them for answers. You looked to them for hope. You put your trust in them. Now, Babylon's gods themselves are going into captivity. The irony here that this takes place as God delivers his people from captivity. See here, again, Bel, Nebo, these gods, these idols, and not just Bel and Nebo, but any god made cannot save against impending destruction. They can't provide respite for the livestock that's carrying them. They themselves are the burden. Rather than being the ones to bear up and save the Babylonians, there is no invisible God. There's no deity behind these images. The images themselves are not deity. And so there is nothing and no one to rescue the Babylonians or even their sacred objects. In contrast, God says to his people in verses 3 and 4, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth and carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and I will save. God is speaking to those of the exile that in this point have gotten old. Some of them maybe were alive and young when they were carried into exile. And a generation later, they are looking at that coming to an end. This remnant of Israel, the ones that are left in this long, arduous exile. This is who he's calling to. And understand then that verses 1 and 2 are not for Babylon to read this is for Israel to read and hear and understand. It's not judgment and doom on Babylon per se. It's a call for Israel to wake up, to realize what they themselves are doing. Here then is the God of the remnant of the house of Israel. He's calling to them. He's revealing himself to them again. He's letting them know that in contrast to the Babylonian gods, he has been carrying them their entire lives, their entire exile. This is a work that will not change, even if they grow old. God is the one carrying. Look at, even in our English translations, it jumps right off the page. In verse 1, Bel and Nebo are born by Livestock. They are carried by these people's beasts of burden. 
But who is the God of Israel? He is the one who has borne his people. He has carried them even from before their birth. This is a sovereign God who has planned this for them. Even if they were born in exile, he has been carrying his people to their old age. He is who he is. In verse 4, all of these eyes are emphatic. So you could read it like this. I myself am he. To the gray hairs, I myself will carry you. I myself have made and I myself will bear. I myself will carry and save. This work of bearing up Israel is not a task that has been passed off to God by somebody else. It's not a synergy of work between God and another nation or God or Israel themselves. God himself is the rescuer. God himself does all of the work. He will carry and will rescue. Part of this rescuing and delivering is very part of this carrying that he's speaking to in these verses. He will rescue. He will deliver. God is the one that has made, in verse 4, I myself have made. Yes, certainly God has made all things. He has created all things. Here he's speaking of Israel's origination. God himself is the one that made Israel to be a people for himself. He made them to be salt and light. He made them to be light to the nations so that all people would know this God who is in direct contrast to the gods made by our hands and to the gods of the world. He is the one that has made them. Why would he do that and then not carry it through? Why would he make and plan to do this in his sovereign good pleasure and then leave them in some way and not carry it through to the end? So God says, listen to me, those of you that have been suffering and have been in exile. Those of you that want deliverance, that are longing for the promises to come true. Trust me. The gods of Babylon, yeah, you might even understand that they're worthless, but know that you yourselves are lacking trust in me. You yourselves are creating false gods. You are worshiping no gods, nothing gods. And in so doing, you're heaping burdens on yourself rather than trusting in the one who has and is and will carry you the whole way through. The beautiful thing is that God's not just carrying the burden of Israel's circumstances. He's not just ultimately getting to the fact that he's going to fix them as the nation and finally giving, give them a place and finally give them some sovereignty. These things are alluding to the fact that they have a much more pressing and deep need than just to be a great nation in and of themselves. Yes, they need deliverance from oppression, of other nations, but they need deliverance from the sin and the spiritual problem and the deadness that is oppressing them. Israel does not yet see this. They don't have eyes to see this yet. And will continue, as we read Isaiah and the rest of the prophets, to see that they will not see until God does something to change them from the very inside. A 
coming out of chapter 46 as you go through the rest of Isaiah is the introduction to the suffering, conquering servant. He would indeed liberate God's people from spiritual bondage. He would give them true freedom as a people. Again, a freedom beyond their imagination, which the literal peace of Jerusalem that they were hoping into simply alluded to true peace of Jerusalem that God was announcing was coming. Think about this for ourselves. Think about the gospel. Yes, God is a God that has done what he did for Israel. He had this message for Israel in their day and age. He carried them. These things were pointing to the suffering servant who in his work would carry our burdens. He would deal with our spiritual problem. It was a burden that nobody could get around, nobody could fix, could not craft anything to take care of that. Even more than bearing our burden, Jesus is the one that becomes the burden himself. Only he's not a burden that gets laid on a flat cart and carried along. Yes, he suffers. Yes, he experiences cruelty. Yes, he's thrown his own cross to carry down the road and up the hill to Golgotha. But it is God's good pleasure to do this. It is God's good pleasure to make Jesus himself the burden that he would be Come sin who knew no sin, so that in him so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christians, this work has been done for us. Jesus has carried us. He has become the burden, and we live in light of that. He continues to carry us and call us to trust him in everything, wholehearted devotion. But we kid ourselves if we think that we've arrived and that we do that in every way. We kid ourselves if we think that we can read verses 1 and 2 and say, <laughs> foolish Babylonians, this ancient culture that just didn't get it. Man, we are sophisticated now. We understand that there's nothing to these images and to these false gods. We understand that God is who he says he is. By God's grace, yes, in a sense, we do. In a sense, we can see a much fuller picture than Israel. And yet, we continue to burden ourselves with our own man-made idols that do not do what they promise. As we could focus on all kinds of things to just apply right now what this means for us. But let me simply just take a moment to say, what does this mean for us in our cultural moment as a church? We know this, but we know that this especially, or maybe just uniquely, because it's been here, it's been a part of our lives and our culture. But in this moment, the idols of safety, security, the idols of control has reared its ugly head maybe in ways that we have not seen in our lives before. Maybe we have not recognized our own hearts are constantly running to make idols. How are you dealing with anxiousness 
with all that this year has for us? How are you dealing with your desire to hold things together? How are you dealing with your desire to be secure? All the things we sang about, certainly, we understand. We want approval. We want power. We could go on and on with the list of what our self-righteous hearts want. But do you find yourselves anxious? And in being anxious, you're looking to cure that anxiousness in places other than wholeheartedly trusting in a God who's promised and proven his promises over and over again to carry us? Folks, we're all afraid. And I laugh sometimes because I know my own heart in these things. And I laugh because I'm brought to the realization at times that we have a spectrum of ways of looking at what 2020 is and has been, and we say that our perspective is the right perspective, and the other perspectives are perspectives of fear. And so we might find ourselves saying, who are we kidding with all this pandemic stuff? Oh, I should have known that was going to happen. Um, dry mouth's coming back. Um, who are we kidding with all of this stuff? This is so overblown. Why won't people stop being afraid? And in the midst of saying those things, we can't stop saying that we're concerned about the way things are headed. We are concerned about the ramifications of what this is going to do to economy and everything else about our society. Do you know what concern is? There is right concern. Don't get me wrong. I'm with you. We can have that conversation. We can talk about the ways in which we as citizens in our city can do good for our city and we can think and respond well. But that concern, what's lying underneath that concern? Have you set something up in some way where you think it is doing something and it will do something for you that when all of a sudden that's taken away, you're not too pleased with the situation? It's time for us as a church, as a whole in our country, to think about these things. On the other side, there are Christians that are genuinely afraid. And again, we can have the conversations about the good ways in which we're concerned for things and how we want to look and protect and do good to one another. But don't become so myopic to think that we can love one another in just one tiny little way and ignore all the other ways people are hurting and suffering? Are you finding yourself afraid that you think your life in some way is hanging on a thread in a way it wasn't before March 15th? And that now that it's here, that you in some way can create your own destiny? Do you have your own tablets of destiny that you're writing with the way you're handling things? Talking heads, pastors, the whole kit and caboodle are saying all kinds of different things, right? And we can hear them, we can explain them away. But don't explain away the words of Jesus. Who of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to your span of life? Who can do that? Folks, you are carried by a God who has carried you before you were born from the womb and will carry you to your designed end. And it won't be by mistake. It won't be 
circumstantial or happenstance or God just saying, I'm focusing on some people over here and you just are going to be plan B and just stuff's going to happen. Every moment of your life that you're given by God is planned by his sovereignty and is played out by his loving pleasure. This is not a God who is doing things because somebody twisted his arm, but he's doing them with purpose. So how are we doing with that? Guys, how are we doing with our safety and security that we so often try to build up in our careers and are having it together in the roles that we have? What have we set up and laud and trust in only to find that over and over again, they don't help us. They don't drive us forward in life in any way than to, to just put us in this washing machine spin cycle again and again and again of heaping burdens on us and stress and pressures on us rather than delivering us and giving us freedom and joy. Ladies, moms, what are you setting up as you seek to be moms, as you seek to protect, as you seek to create homes that are refuges? All good things, all wonderful things. But I'll tell you what, watch your heart. Pretty soon you're going to be trusting in your own recipe for success. You're going to be trusting in somebody's book of knowledge and say, do it my way and all of your wildest dreams will come true. You will have perfect success. Just follow the manuscript and you'll be good. Does that heap freedom upon you when you wake up one day and realize that you're following the recipe and your kid isn't doing what the recipe said he would do? Is it helping you when you find out that in all your work to protect and isolate and insulate for good desires, the elephant's in the room. Sin is right there in the midst of the refuge. Burden after burden from driving towards these things and trying to make it happen by ourselves, to try in some way to twist God, to say, God, this is the plan I have for me. This is what I want. How are we doing in these areas of anxiousness and our handmade gods of safety and security that might even have a semblance of religion to them, but when we dig down deep, we realize we've set up our own false saviors rather than trust in the God who has and is and will carry us. All right, that was a lot of application and for four verses. Let's move on. In verse 5 through 7, another little piece of this poem in chapter 46, we read this. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Isaiah asks Israel, to pull out, so to speak, a picture of Yahweh. Pull out a picture. Get out the photo albums. Let's take a look at Yahweh. 
and then take a look at all the other gods that we've crafted. Which one is God-like? Can we compare Yahweh to one of these other gods that we have made? Maybe if we do some DNA testing, we can see where there's some overlap. And we can see how Yahweh resembles these gods. The point's kind of clear, right? Just like Yahweh has said to Job, to his people, to the patriarchs all along the way, who can you compare me to? I am the I am. There is no one like me. Trust in me. So he says, you can't compare me to anything or anyone that we may be alike. I'm completely other. Yet we do this all the time, don't we? Again, this might look foolish to us on the surface. You might say, well, who could do that? Who would look at the gods of the world and compare them to Yahweh? I understand. I get that. Every time we sin, we've just done that. Every time we sin in our hearts and minds, we have said God or X. What's even more ludicrous is that when we sin, we make that comparison, God or X, fill in the blank. But not only do we make that comparison, we choose the X. We choose the thing that in no way resembles Yahweh, in no way offers what Yahweh offers. We're no different. We can read these just ancient peoples and seem so distant and so cavemanish, apart from us sophisticated moderns, and yet we do the same thing. Hear the mockery, too, in verses 6 and 7. The one fashioning an idol makes it into a god. <laughs> it's pathetically sad. And then they fall down and worship. Doesn't that sound like utter and total devotion? Isaiah, again, is being really sarcastic with the, this phrase. You make a god, and then in worshiping this god, oh yeah, you fall down. You better believe you fall down. You have no idea how far down you fall when you worship a God that you have made with your own means. <clears throat> they go on and they set up their false God. And though they pray to it, they cry out to it. Surprise, surprise. It does not answer. It does not appease their difficulties and their suffering. Understand Again, the surprise isn't that, what? These gods aren't answering them? That's not the surprise. The surprise is that the ones doing this would be asinine enough to do it and believe it. Again, we don't need to jump through hoops to make application, right? This is a call to us to understand when we do these same things, the ridiculousness 
of what our twisted and rebellious and stubborn-hearted hearts do with idols. God says in verse 8, remember. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. In these chapters, this is Isaiah's last drive, his last appeal to Israel before the realities of them not fully listening to these appeals plays out. It's his last appeal to accept God for who he is and to trust in him. Here he's calling for them to not look at their circumstances through the eyes of their own culture and their own circumstances, but to look at their culture, look at their circumstances through the lens of God's working in history. He wants them to have a theological vision. He wants them to interpret reality through the grid of God's revelation to them, rather than through the lens of their own culture and their own circumstances. You can see hints in these verses of the fact that Isaiah's call will indeed go unheeded. He calls them rebels, transgressors in verse 8 and verse 12. He says they're stubborn of heart. And so they have had their God call to them over and over again and reveal himself to him, them for all that he is. They will not heed his word, his voice. They will not heed Isaiah. They need spiritual liberation. They need eyes to see and ears to hear. In these verses, Isaiah calls Israel to exercise their minds, to remember. He says that true remembering should result in confession of their guilt. This idea of standing firm, remember this, and upon remembering, do what? Stand firm. This wordage has the idea of, of acting rationally to God's reality. If you are going to remember Israel, think back. Think back on your history. Think back on what I have done, how I have shown you myself and my plan over and over again. If you do that, Israel, if you truly remember with theological eyes, your response is going to be a rational one of confess your guilt. Realize that you stand in judgment before a holy God. Realize that your continual complaining and forgetting God and serving other gods is what it is. And so Isaiah says, exercise your memories. Remember your own history. And then he uses two words for God here to show the kind of God, again, that he is. He says, for I am El, and there is no other. I'm the transcendent one, the God of glory. I am completely other than everything else. I am El. 
and I am Elohim. There is no one like me. The one, as mentioned earlier, that is full and whole in every way. Every aspect of the divine attributes find their wholeness in God. He is Elohim. There is nobody like God. Because God is this, because he is God, he alone is the one who can plan and then declare the outcome from the beginning. He's completely sovereign. He's completely other. There's no one like him. Nothing can thwart his plan. History, it's not happenstance, folks. 2020, it's not a ill-conceived moment of history by God. Again, he says, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. I will accomplish all that I please, is what it's saying there. This is God's will playing out in fullness. Again, do we believe these things about our own situation? Do we think God has turned his back on us in any way? That God is not sovereign in any way? That our moment in time, more so than any other crazy moment in time, has taken God by surprise? And he can't do about it what he would want to do? He can't do about it what we would want him to do? We're fools if we think that. His counsel will stand and he will accomplish all his good pleasure. How will he do that? Uh, Verse 11. He will call a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. All right, God. Yeah, we know. We're going to trust that you're this type of God. We get it. Do what you said you were going to do. And God does. And Israel says, wait, what? No, don't do that. No, that's not what we want. No, that, what are you doing, God? This is what's going on here. Isaiah is letting Israel know 150 plus years before it happens. They are going to see the hand of sovereign God over history. They are going to see him continue to work and continue to do what he has promised for them. And they're not going to like how he does it. We can throw them a bone. We can. Cyrus, a pagan king, somebody who will use God for his own good political purposes. You see in the beginning of Ezra when he sends people back and says, go do your thing. He's not trusting in God. He's using Yahweh as a political platform for his own devices. Cyrus is not going to be the promised hope for Israel. He's not going to be the restoration of the Davidic line. He's not going to fulfill promises in that way that Isaiah speaks of and gives hope to. But he's going to deliver. He's going to accomplish the good purposes of God. Israel needs to see that all of the world is in the hands of God. He's not just focused on them, but he's focused on them so that the whole world will know that he is God. 
so that people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation will know that he is God. And if he deems that it is best to carry along his story with the language of Cyrus, it is good. Israel needs to go with it and rejoice. And yet, they complain. This bird of prey, God's going to use nonetheless. Israel's called to trust in the hard facts of this and to know, again, that God has planned the outcomes of all things from the beginning. When he talks about one who will come and fulfill the Davidic line, when he talks about this shoot coming out from the stump of Jesse to restore truly and to make all things right and new, he will do it. And along the way, he'll use Cyrus to do it. But Israel doesn't like it very much. What's interesting is that this is not the first time nor the last time that Israel complains. Half a millennia later, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. The manner of his plans were complained against again. The suffering servant, God in flesh, the one announced in Isaiah 53, he was indeed rejected by God's people. He, the very one that through himself would carry and redeem, he would truly accomplish all that Israel longed for, whether they realized they longed for it and needed it or not. The very one, get this, the very one who said that he was the true and living and lasting temple. He was the cornerstone of the promises of God. He would be the one that fulfills the dreams of Israel and do it far beyond what Israel could comprehend in the types and shadows of their day. But the cornerstone himself would be rejected. We do the same thing again. <laughs> we love God's promises. We'll sing of God's promises. We'll rejoice in what he's done and what he said he will do. But the present... We don't necessarily like his methods, do we? We love his promises. We don't dig his methods all the time. We have lives full of Cyruses, so to speak. And we would rather complain and say, what purpose does this have? This isn't doing what God said. This isn't part of God's promise. I don't like it. God, deliver me from this. <laughs> Isaiah is telling us in this chapter to stop doing that and to rejoice and to know that these very things, plug it in, folks, 2020 has given us lots of options to plug things in here. What is it that we're complaining about and saying, yeah, God, I'm going to come. I'm going to gather with your people on Sunday and I'm going to rejoice about all the things that you've done and I'm going to narrow your gospel to this tiny little part of the gospel, forgiveness from sin, and I'm Get out, got my get out of hell card. But that's what it all it is to me. And then there's this weird ethereal hope to come way in the future where I'll get to just do some things that apparently are good and they're supposed to sound good. But man, right now, God, I, I don't like it. We need to see the sovereign hand of God in all of our circumstances and know they are bits and pieces of his story that is leading to every good and perfect thing. 
It is leading to the reunification of heaven and earth. It is leading to the true high place, the true Zion, the true Jerusalem, the very earth remade. And heaven and earth made one so that we can be God's people and he will be our God and form us. 2020 plays into eternity, folks. It's part of his sovereign good pleasure to do these things for our sake. So Isaiah says, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off. My salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Here, this righteousness that Israel is far from is not this moral righteousness, this goodness. This is Israel lacking in their agreement with and conformity to God's good will and pleasure. They're far from it, Isaiah says. They are far from what is right and wholesome to hold to. They've set their minds and their hearts on something different. Yet God's righteousness, the epitome of his sovereign goodwill, it is near. The one who alone can make these things play out, the one who needs no other, who needs no help, his righteousness, the fullness of all Israel's longings, the fullness of all our longings is indeed near. Yes, much of what is speaking to, being spoken to here has indeed already come. We find ourselves Christians in Christ, united to him and his work. Salvation has not delayed. It has come. But full salvation is still a not yet for us. Glorification all things being made new, we still await. And so we find ourselves in a semblance of exile as well. The New Testament tells us very clearly that this is the case for us. Are we believing that the righteousness of God, perfection, no longer sin and tears and suffering and death and pain, is not far off? God's salvation will not delay the day that he will put salvation in Zion. Jesus himself in the new heavens and new earth where God's people, this true remnant, people from all tribes, tongues, and nations will be the Israel of God, will be for God's glory, and they will live in fullness of their humanity. These things are coming. Do we trust wholeheartedly in a God? who has proven over and over and over again that he will indeed carry out his sovereign will. This is where lament helps us so much because lament allows us to say, God, where are you? What are you doing? I don't get it and I don't like it. But it doesn't let us stay there. Lament calls us to wrestle with the brokenness of the world and the sin in our own hearts but to trust in the promises of God and say, God, I don't get it and I don't like it, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to hope in you and I'm going to rejoice that your promises are and will come true. Without lament, we just complain 
and we start looking at all of life through the lens of our hard hearts and culture rather than looking at it through a theological grid of God's working in history. So lament well, church. Don't try to cover over the shadows and the hardness with platitudes. Lament well and trust in the promises of God. God indeed will put salvation in Zion. Israel is, or sorry, Isaiah is full of pictures of Eden, of flourishing trees and rivers being made into cities. These things are and will come to pass. And all that God has promised will indeed play out. Let's trust, church. One final application and I'm done. Because in a sense, Isaiah 46 isn't a passage just in and of itself. It spills out into the beginning parts of chapter 47. What is the end of trusting in gods that end up getting shackled to carts and carried off by livestock because they cannot do what we want them to do. They cannot deliver, they cannot carry. The end of trusting in these things is destruction. Chapter 47 pronounces the destiny of Babylon, and that destiny is that they will be destroyed. And all they will have is a spot in the annals of history. It, Babylon was at one time the epitome of sophistication, the epitome of advancing culture, and yet they have been brought low. Why is this? God says through Isaiah in verse 8, Hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. This is what fallen humanity has said and lived in light of throughout history. Rather than trusting in the living and righteous God who made us and is redeeming and offers himself to all come and trust in him. We say, no, I'm going to make my own gods. I'm going to make me a god. I'm going to trust in myself. Do you hear the blasphemy in these words? When we do these things in our hearts, we walk in the way of trusting in our own devices, in our own power and strength. We're shaking our fist at the God of the universe saying, I am there's no one like me. I can do this. This reality has been shown to be true over and over again through history, both in cultures and in individuals. I know that in any group the size, there are some that are without Christ. Some that are maybe here, but are like, yeah, I'm here for whatever reason, but I'm not believing this. I'm skeptical of this whole story. I'm skeptical of this Jesus. There's some of you that are maybe playing the part. You've got a nice, nice dose of civil religion in your life, and you can play the part. 
and yet you're wrestling, you're skeptical. You've got your own pantheon of gods. Would you hear the message of God today? There is no other end to idolatry than destruction. The beauty is that in the midst of warning and judgment, there's a call from this God, a call of hope. Ilya read it earlier for us. Jesus himself says, do you find yourself burdened down by the teachings, religions of others? Do you find yourself burdened by the cultural trappings of your society that say this is the answer, this is our hope, this will be utopia? And you're doing it. You're following all the right steps. And yet you are burdened down. Jesus says, come. Come to me. I will give you rest. My teachings, who I am for you is light. It is full of joy, satisfaction, even in the midst of a life full of Cyrus-type events. Yes, we've been going through Ephesians, and we see the sovereignty of God even in salvation, but let me say clearly, God does not call people without faith to sit and wrestle with whether or not they were chosen before time began, and now they've got to wrestle with the 50-50 chance. It's never the call of God to people that are lost. Instead, our good shepherd says, come. All of you who are weary, if you're feeling the reality of your own work to make gods, come to me. Don't question, don't overanalyze. Hear truth, and respond in faith. Come and find freedom. Come and find all of the things that your wrestlings and your self-made gods cannot do. You're invited to that today. Christians, remember too, we cannot put our trust in anything apart from the good news of Jesus Christ. Again, this is a year, not just because of March till now, but because of the coming months, that as we look at our own hearts, we can maybe find ourselves as American Christians putting a little bit of stock, a little bit of trust in the gods of our own good, great, righteous nation, right? May we be careful not to put our trust in anything, our hopes in anything, as good and right as it may be in society and in culture. But know that we are exiles in our own Babylon. And apart from those individuals and apart from that culture, society as a whole, repenting and seeing God for who he is and responding in rationality to say, we repent. God is God. There is no one like him. We are guilty. We turn to him. Apart from that happening, our culture, our nation can't give us any hope. No lasting hope. So be careful where you continue to place your trust and hope. May we be people 
that don't just proclaim the hardships of life and don't just complain about the things that we wish hadn't happened in this year and voice our anxieties. There's time and place to have good discussions about all these things, and we should. But as we do so, what are we proclaiming to one another, and what are we proclaiming to the world? Who is our God? Who are we wholeheartedly trusting in? Is our soul tied to no other one than our Savior King? Or do we have a little pantheon hidden in our hearts? May the Spirit of God be gracious to work his word in us, that we would be salt and light to one another, to our generation. Let's pray and worship him in song before we go. God, we thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. It's certainly been a challenge to me, and I trust that as your spirit takes anything that was right and true, that you would work it in. My brothers and sisters, that we would go in faith and boldness and freedom and joy for all circumstances and situations that you have for us this week. We pray in the name of our Savior, King Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.